I look forward to this conversation with Bucky Cutright. Bucky is a storyteller. He has great respect for ghosts, ghost stories, and for cemeteries and the monuments therein. Bucky enjoys the history of a town as told in a cemetery. Bucky is owner-operator of Ghost Tours in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, Bucky. What brought you into the interest with the paranormal? Was it as simple as a ghost chasing you down the street? No, um, it's no, you know, it's something I've always, always had uh, since my earliest memories. um, When I was three or four, I learned that my father was a carpenter, and that meant that he could build things. And the very first thing I asked him to build was a bunch of tombstones so we could have a graveyard uh, (laughs) outside our uh, front door. And uh, yeah, I've always been very much into the paranormal as early as I can remember, and storytelling as well. Um, growing up in West Virginia, there's that sort of a tradition of, um, you know, it was, uh, the Appalachia was mostly settled by the Scotch-Irish. They brought their traditions of and superstitions of ghosts and witches and signs and omens and that sort of thing with them. And uh, I just grew up with that those sort of stories around me, and storytelling was very much a uh, part of the culture there, too. So I just sort of uh, was born into this, I guess you could say. <laughs> Sounds like it. Is there a direct story or connection between what you just said and a member of the prior generation of your family? Well, you know, I uh, I do have quite a few stories of um, um, my father. He used to um, uh, tell me stories to put me to sleep at night, and I would always ask that they be ghost stories. <laughs> Those were my favorite. It was great to have Superman and Wonder Woman and all that stuff in there, but as long as there was a ghost involved, that's what really mattered the most to me. You know, and and I as a child too I had my grandfather tell me stories about coming home one day when he was a young man and turning a corner in the road and seeing a person holding their own head under their arm you know a headless person that sort of thing so it was it was uh it was just always um always around it's I so it doesn't even you know for me this doesn't even feel like a job it's just fun <laughs> well you're very lucky I know people that at claim different kinds of paranormal experiences. And I think the majority of these people claim they've had experiences more than one time. Yeah, actually, in um, uh, I think it was 2015, uh, Pew uh, Institute did a poll of uh, Americans, and uh, I believe it was it was a pretty high amount uh, like that said that they'd actually had experiences with a ghost around 18%, which isn't doesn't seem high in relation to percentages, but if you consider that uh, with the population of the United States, that's around uh, 60 million people who said they've actually encountered a ghost here in this country. And I started these, honestly, Patrick, as a way to introduce people to local history and local businesses. And uh, I I think it's uh, Columbus is a bit of a transitory town. And we have a lot of folks that come here for school and they may stay for a little while and then they move to another city. And I've always felt that it's really important for them to, uh, while they're here, have some sort of sense of investment in the uh, area where they're living. And otherwise you just get all these ugly new builds, <laughs> buildings, you know, going up where no one really has much a sense of the identity or uh, culture of the place. And so I thought, you know, the best way to uh, really 
get people involved and teach them history was through ghost stories because it uh it for one it's a little bit more interesting than just flat out um historical facts and secondly if I'm telling someone about a, uh, you know, the second mayor of the city donating land where the North Market is as a, um, for use as a cemetery, that's sort of okay, whatever. But if I uh, then mention, by the way, uh, his grave is lost, and they say he wanders the streets, so you might see him, then that sort of helps it stick in people's memory, you know. <laughs> so yeah, so these uh, stories of the supernatural, it's. There, it surprised me. That's how I started this, and I was sort of a roundabout way of answering or t- talking to your uh, your point. Um, but I pretty soon after starting these, I began having experiences of my own, and realized that there's a lot more to the notion of ghosts and that sort of thing than uh, than just stories. I think you uh, certainly touched on a very important point, and that is that people learn quickly through the story rather than through the historical narrative. For example, for 30 years, we raised our family in a large home, which went back to 1846. We lived in Iowa, and that was the time that Iowa became a state. And the oldest part of that house is recognized as the place where Grinnell College started. But there were other additions. The most recent was 1892. In the 30 years we were there, we were basically the second owners of this very old house. That's amazing. So in the course of that, many people toured our home, friends and family and the public. Likewise, they toured the neighborhood. And generally, people got a little bored with all of the history. Mm -hmm. But if we just took a moment and mentioned something about the ghosts they start paying attention. Yeah, that perks them right up, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It certainly does. Yeah, Yeah, well, that's, I think, you know, um, it it makes it more personal for people because uh, while, you know, maybe a connection to Grinnell College might not, uh, or may or may not, you know, matter to some of these folks, uh, we all die. (laughs) We all want to know what happens afterwards. So, Talking about ghosts is something that people can really connect uh, to on a on a very personal level, and it causes this. Um, even even the skeptics, I think, have something to uh, glean from these uh, tales, and just in so, what sort of insight they might give into um, possible afterlife. A location for me that shines a light on the history of a community is a community cemetery. Mm-hmm. I. I've got hundreds, maybe a thousand pictures from cemeteries in many states. In fact, I was recently passing through an area along the shoreline of Lake Michigan, and there was a sign pointing to a cemetery. From the street that I was driving on, there was no evidence of a road or even of a cemetery, but I persisted and found my way (laughs) up there. It was one of the very best cemetery visits I've ever had. And again, it's a good way to see the history of the community. For example, there was one marker with the name Five Children, and they all died of yellow fever. Mm-hmm. So you could see that none of they were all born about two years apart. 
Yes. Yeah, the um, uh, cemeteries, we actually uh, just started doing uh, tours of uh, the, there's a large uh, cemetery here in Columbus, Greenlawn, which is uh, the second largest uh, cemetery in the state. And with COVID, um, bus travel isn't really an option right now, you know. Uh, So our tours, one thing I came up with is a a way of taking a virtual tour of the city by uh, visiting the graves of people who are said to haunt various locations around Columbus. And I've I've always been interested in cemeteries, and I grieve very much with you in terms of getting a sense of place you're visiting. trip to the cemetery is really very, very helpful. But these uh, tours, since I've been doing them, I've really gotten uh, kind of overboard into the the realm of uh, mortuary art and that sort of thing, Um, and tombstone symbolism. I've been encouraging people all uh, year long to get out and visit cemeteries because those are a rather safe place to be during this time. You know, you're not going to run into too many other living people there. <laughs> right. and, 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 the, and the ones that are there are all six feet down, so they're separated, you know, distanced. Um, but these cemeteries, they're very often, they're like open-air um, history and art museums. And it's just, you know, the work that went into memorializing the dead is just beautiful and astounding uh, in many cases. So we ended up... <laughs> Uh, at the at the beginning of this whole crazy year, I had a friend who had just moved to a um, a small suburb outside of the city, and uh, because I'd been encouraging everyone to visit cemeteries, she was very uh, quick to tell me one day that she was going to visit the one near her house. And I said, oh, see if you can find this particular uh, tombstone in that cemetery. See if you can find that. And she went and, and did it, and it became like a scavenger hunt. And all of a sudden, all these people wanted to play. <laughs> and it turned into um, something that I call graveyard bingo. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we actually um, we made the, I made these uh, bingo cards, and, and they would have uh, symbols that you could find in any cemetery, um, clasping hands, uh, a lamb, uh, children's shoes. And and it causes, it, well, it gave, gave a lot of really, really bored people something fun to do and get them outside their houses during, uh, you know, quarantine and that sort of thing. And um, it also kind of causes you to stop and pause and really pay attention to these fine details uh, that you would certainly otherwise not notice. You know, you just pass right through. And um, yeah, that's it's it's been great fun. I actually were... Um, selling those on our website, Columbus Ghost Tours, now um, for $5 each as a fundraiser for uh, Toys for Tots, because I imagine there's a lot of children who are not not going to have a particularly good winter holiday season as a result of uh, the financial impact of um, some of you know the past year. So always take a whisk broom, because so many of the stones have grass cuttings that essentially hide them. Yes. Yeah, they do. And um, that's, uh, you know, I uh, that and uh, over time, the um, the lichen and that sort of thing can, uh, the older stones, they can be very, very difficult to read. Now, in that case, you should never use a broom on those because that can actually damage some of those older stones. Um, but there are, uh, there's a number of preservation, uh, amateur preservationist groups that are forming these days uh, for cemeteries. And uh, there's a there's a chemical agent that you can get called D2. Uh, D is in um, 
Donkey Kong, you know, <laughs> and um, it's a it's a uh, it's a microbial spray that actually uh, slowly and gently eats and destroys the lichen and cleans the stones. So you can spray this stuff on a on a gnarled old uh, grade tombstone and uh, come back in about six weeks, and it'll be uh, pristine, gleaming white, and you'll be able to uh, read the etchings and, and names and and uh, oftentimes the epitaph, the poem, uh, quite clearly. There are a number of friends uh, that I ha- have made uh, through my line of work that uh, are uh, do wonderful, wonderful stuff with uh, preservation, and they uh, constantly use it, and I've seen um, the effects of it. Uh, I spent a lot of time in cemeteries, and I can, at this point, you know, walk by, and I can tell when there's a stone that's been treated with it. But it, it it does it does a fantastic job and and it, I think of you know whenever I was a a young uh, man, my parents and I well, I always have been like this as I said you know <laughs> into the spooky stuff we um there was a cemetery near our house that was on a hilltop and we would uh, go there pretty much every day after dinner to, for a walk and uh, one day we noticed a um a tombstone there that belonged to an ancestor. We hadn't realized that we had a family buried in that particular cemetery before that. And uh, it was in pretty poor shape. So uh, my father and I um, whipped up a uh, tincture of of, um, some uh, acid and uh, um, other stuff to try to clean the stone. And we ended up uh, destroying it. So so I actually did the opposite of what you're supposed to do once. And uh, ever since, I've always um, been very, very careful about my... uh, work around the stones and maybe i'm a little gun shy about doing anything to them as a result you have one site that you i think might give a tour but at least you speak about and that is an event at a penitentiary in columbus which is no longer open it's an interesting story can you speak a little bit about that yeah well when columbus was founded in 1812 the very first building they constructed was a prison because they wanted to use a convict labor to construct everything else. And um, the original uh, prison was uh, just a small two-story building with um, a quarters for the warden and his family on the first floor. And the second floor was um, 13 uh, cells. And uh, very shortly after constructing it, they realized that they had grossly underestimated central Ohio's capacity for evil. (laughs) They had to continually um, expand and expand and expand. And in 1834, it became clear that they had to think on a much, much larger scale. So they built this 22-acre federal penitentiary in downtown Columbus. And uh, the city was pretty much just a village at that point and here you have this enormous prison it was really rather out of place but this uh they they tore it down in 2000 to um build a um series of condos and offices and uh, there's a movie theater on site that's not no longer functioning in a hockey arena. Now, um, that's one of the real reasons that got me inspired to start doing these tours because this prison was so integral to the um, identity of the city, the state, uh, the nation, and just uh, us as a as a people. Culturally, uh, there were um, several significant inmates there. Oh, Henry, the guy that wrote The Gift of the Magi, you know, the Christmas uh, parable, um, he wrote that while he was in prison there for embezzlement, 
which I think is sort of a, you know, ironic. Maybe he was going to buy his boss a golden comb with the money and he just didn't. <laughs> um, there was a mental asylum in the penitentiary, which was kind of rare uh, at the time it was built. And there was an inmate there named James Brown who had been um, – accused of killing and drinking the blood of a couple of uh, his shipmates whenever he was part of a crew on a whaling ship in 1866. And while he was at the Ohio Penitentiary, it was said that any time rats would get into his cell, he'd uh, quickly snatch them up, twist their heads off, and drink the blood. And he tried to use a rusty fork to open the veins of a prison guard once to get at that precious fluid. And uh, several other inmates, uh, he supposedly tried to um, kill to get their blood. And he was at the Ohio Penitentiary. He'd been moved from other prisons uh, between 1889 and 1892. And in 1892, he was transferred to a penitentiary with another asylum in D.C. And when this happened, it became a headline news, The Vampire of the Ohio Penitentiary. Well, the story was told pretty much as I conveyed it to you now. And there's some questions as to how accurate any of that is. But regardless, that's what the newspaper said, the story that I just told you. And at that same time, in 1892, uh, Bram Stoker was touring the United States as the manager of a theater troupe. And he certainly saw the story, and he went back to the UK, and in 1897, he published Dracula and said it in 1892. And I you know, think if you've read it or watched any of the film versions of that story, you can see how very closely our James Brown parallels the character Renfield. And that's a little bit of a connection to classic horror literature. That's quite uh, remarkable. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. And th- there was just, there was so many different uh, aspects to that penitentiary that uh, were amazing. It's where they um, first used the uh, HeLa cells uh, to experiment on cancer research. Um, uh, there was a the HeLa cells belonged to a woman named HeLa is short for Henrietta Lacks. That was the name of a woman who contracted cancer in a. Uh, Baltimore in the uh, 1950s, and after she died, her tumors continued to live, and it was the first time that uh, doctors had observed something like that living uh, beyond the death of its host, and (laughs) they thought, let's um, take some of these cancer cells, put them in a syringe, and inject them into people and see what happens. A great opportunity for research, huh? And, And the place that they decided to do this would be the Ohio Penitentiary. Now, there was some uh, semblance of civil rights at the time, and they said, you know, we can't uh, just forcefully inject these convicts with uh, cancer cells. We have to make it voluntary. So they asked, you know, who wants to do this? And the, I think it was a, um, a resounding, to hell with you, man, sort of from the prison population. But there was one inmate there. Um, his name was Sam Shepard, who was accused of murdering his wife in the Cleveland area. He's the inspiration for the movie and television show, The Fugitive. And he approached the inmates after this was proposed, and he said, look, you know, we owe a debt to society, and the best way we can pay it back from behind these prison walls is to participate in this experiment. And he willingly allowed them to inject him with the cells, and a a number of other uh, inmates followed suit as a result. And um, spoiler alert, they almost all contracted cancer. Uh, so now we know. I think Sam Shepard was himself a physician. Yes, he was. He was a doctor. Yes, he was. He actually did. Oh, I think it was cancer that ended up killing him. But he was after he was freed, he developed a quite a severe case of alcoholism, 
lived out the end of his life here in the city, um, in a small suburb outside of town. But his case is fascinating. There's so many different inmates uh, that just had really, really interesting stories. The prison also saw a lot of tragedy. There was a, well, for starts, there were 29 hangings there and uh, 315 electrocution. Pretty large. I mean, I think that puts us pretty close to Texas in terms of state-sanctioned death. And there was also the uh, fire of Easter 1930, where um, 322 inmates were burned alive in their cells. So that place has, uh, it's got a lot of suffering and misery, uh, or it certainly did uh, in a, contained in those 22 acres. That's quite a fire. How many people perished? 322. It was, um, the, the whenever the prison was built in uh, 1834, it was meant to house 950 inmates, and it was constantly overcrowded. And in the mid-1950s, it had uh, close to 6,000 in there. So that's a lot more than they anticipated. And they were always trying to find ways to accommodate the population by building new cell blocks and struck within. And on Easter of that year, 1930, there was a wooden frame structure going up uh, along the western uh, edge of the property that was going to be a new cell block. And these uh, three inmates got an idea that if they could arrange for that thing to catch fire while everyone was in the cafeteria eating, then they could escape in all the smoke and confusion. So what they did was they took um, some pie pans and they placed them in the rafters, poured uh, kerosene or turpentine into them, and then... uh, they stolen some candles from the uh, church on site and stuck those in the hands, lit them, and then went to dinner thinking this should have the building to go up sometime soon, but it didn't. It, uh, they finished dinner. They were sent out to the wreck you know, yard for some exercise, and uh, then it started to get late, and everyone was locked down for the night, and it was 30 minutes after that happened that the fire erupted. And, uh, yeah, they were... 322 that were burned to death or by smoke inhalation died. 260, I believe, near that were injured in the fire, but managed to survive it. And it was one of the greatest tragedies to ever befall the state, I would say. And it was the largest loss of life to fire um, outside of the Triangle Shirt Factory, which happened in New York City. And that, those sorts of things, that's how you uh, make ghost stories. <laughs> that Just that tragedy, it um, really seems to have left marked Stories that actually back to that event? There are people who um, have reported hearing the screams, seeing these shadow figures, uh, smelling the smoke. The screams, by the way, they said you could hear for a radius of over a mile that night. And there's a kind of upper-class uh, neighborhood, uh, just a short ways west of that prison location. And I can imagine all these people sitting to their own dinners, and, and it's suddenly being interrupted by the cacophony of 322 people burning alive at the same time. And it would get just quieter and quieter over the course of the evening, and eventually you just hear one person screaming, and then silence. Now, I, I, there was actually a woman on a tour uh, earlier this year whose office is on that site where the fire was. And she said that there are quite often evenings that she has to physically run out of the building because she uh, feels as if there's something uh, bearing down on her the entire time. So uh, th- there's also um, 
a group of condominiums <laughs> on the site, rather interestingly, or named Burnham condominiums, but they're named after the architect, uh, the Chicago architect. There was a gentleman who lived in one of those a while back who would uh, hear laughing and screaming and crying, laughing and crying and screaming coming from somewhere at night. And he would think, you know, maybe there's a, a couple that's in a relationship beyond the point they should be in one. And I better go check, you know, see what's going on here. And whenever he'd open the door to his uh, condo, the noise would stop. And he uh, was asking the neighbors about it and they were hearing it too, but no one could figure out where it was coming from. And out of curiosity, one day he eventually went to the library and checked to find a map of the penitentiary and see what buildings sat on the side of his present condo. And it was where the asylum had been. <laughs> so, you know, there's those sorts of things going on. So you mentioned the triangle fire. I think you said shirt triangle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the one that led to uh, child uh, labor laws because okay. so many children burned to death. And then in Ohio, we've got prison fire. Are there any other in Columbus large industrial accidents that claimed a great well, number of lives? Um, there, there are a lot of uh, these large buildings, uh, you know, in any city. Our most iconic skyscraper is what's now called Levesque Tower. It was originally named the Citadel when it was in 1929. And whenever they were uh, constructing it, they hit a pocket of noxious gas while they were digging the foundation, and it instantly killed four of the workers. Just a short ways from there, there was a, it's now the Ohio Supreme Court building, and whenever we were building that in 1932, there was a gas explosion that killed 12 and injured another 50. The Ohio State House, which was built between 1839 and 1861, was constructed with prison labor and uh, inmates, so we didn't deem it worth the pencil and paper to uh, record these things. But we do know that, in fact, there were quite a few that died. That Now, there was another tragedy that we were in 1913. There rained uh, just an enormous amount, and I forget how many people died in total across the state. I think it might have been around 500 to 600. It caused the dams and to breach and break and, and levees and it killing 96 people here in the city. Have you had an opportunity to travel anywhere to pursue these stories elsewhere? Yes. Um, uh, right at the beginning of this year, I started a, a series of events which were quickly nipped in the bud, <laughs> uh, but it, uh, there were mystery, legend, and lore uh, tours. And basically what the idea was is there's so many um, just wonderful uh, places that have these incredible stories and they're scattered around and, and so many of us can get caught in our day-to-day -day life and you, you, you know, you might be months without leaving your just regular route you know from home to the store to work to the gym to home and i uh you know people do love podcasts and i thought you know what about a living podcast experience you meet me in a parking lot <laughs> in the morning and uh we get in a a, a van and um breathe each other's droplets which we now know is a bad thing um, and uh and and we'd take you to this um, mysterious place and once you'd get there you'd hear the stories get a tour and that sort of thing i do spend a lot of my free time traveling around uh not just ohio but just as 
far as my car can carry me in a day's drive uh, to explore these different uh, places uh, that are steeped in legends and lore. And we also, two years ago, we did a overseas trip to Ireland. We took people for a week to uh, stay in haunted castles and uh, tour these uh, sites and get a sense of the culture uh, through um, our sort of dark lens. And uh, that was um, really fantastic. And and we're looking forward to doing some more trips like that in the future once we're able to. uh, Eastern Europe, uh, maybe, and uh, and Ireland was a very popular one, so we'll probably be repeating that as well. Not long ago, I had a guest who's a specialist in bats. So, of course, I wandered into Transylvania. <laughs> and it was quickly corrected that bat is only in South and Central America. Oh, okay. But anyway, so some of the notions I had regarding the vampire bat and others <laughs> were quickly dismissed. Dispelled, yes. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, we're here to learn. You know, um, part of the part of the fun of some of these stories is telling people like, oh no no no, actually, there are a lot of actually ghost stories too uh, that get told around the city that, while they've been based on a factual event, uh, the telephone game has happened over the decades, maybe a century or so since they occurred, and people now have a very uh, twisted view of what actually occurred. And that's, uh, I mean, while we are telling ghost stories. Uh, we do have a responsibility to try to make that uh, those those tales corrected. I've only lived here in Wisconsin along the shoreline of Lake Michigan for about a year. In that time, I've read that there are about 190 shipwrecks going back maybe 100 years. There was a commercial airline in the 1950s, I think, that disappeared in the lake. Not a trace has ever been found. But Sixty or so passengers and crew. Lake Erie actually has a lot of uh, um, interesting uh, ghost stories as well. Uh, just um, off the uh, coast, uh, there's a couple islands, uh, Middle Bass Island, which is uh, more popularly uh, referred to as Putin Bay, and it's sort of a, a resort for many Ohioans. And uh, then there's Kelly's Island. Um, both of them have more than a fair share of ghost stories. Um, uh, there's a haunted lighthouse. There was a quarry on Kelly's Island where there was an explosion that killed a bunch of people. And uh, they, were, they were building a tunnel under the lake that actually collapsed. And uh, there have been several times where people have been on boats that have been capsized or sinking. And they say that the water looks like hands reaching up and trying to drag them under. Uh, so that's kind of a fun one as well. Do you have several projects that you're moving forward on? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and I've ended up collecting a huge number of stories that haven't been told in well over a hundred years. And I'm putting those together in, in a book format. Um, that's sort of one of the goals for this winter. And I'm planning on putting together a series of segments about the uh, ju- different legends and folklore of uh, of various locations around the Midwest and and Appalachia. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun for me just to, you know, take a couple days and get out into the the countryside and and explore these uh, places where these uh, things happened. I'm sharing these stories. I love to do it. And being able to do so in any way is going to be great fun for me. So if it has to be virtually, that's a-okay. Do you ever have an opportunity to go to grade schools or junior high schools? 
I have had um, s- several uh, school groups. I've I've done events for them, and at the beginning of the year, I was uh, supposed to speak a school group, but uh, that was uh, sh- <laughs> shut down with the um, with the pandemic. There have been there have been several times where uh, we've had you know a different school group come along and uh, <laughs> I think probably my favorite there was a um, a charter school that was doing a uh, a workshop on horror writing and that sort of thing and they decided to uh, bring the children on one of my tours and about it was towards the end of the uh, event I was. Telling a story, and one of these young girls put her hands over her ears and said, "I don't want to learn anymore." <laughs> I took that as a fantastic compliment. <laughs> Probably the best I've ever received. It's such a um, razor's edge with the telling children's stories, though, because um, sometimes I'll have young people on my tours, and they've been uh, introduced to uh, intense and graphic horror movies and things from a young age, and they're just bored, <laughs> you know. Unless there's someone, uh, unless there's someone being eviscerated with a sharp knife or something, and then there are the sheltered that uh, the slightest story can keep them awake for weeks, you know. So, so that that can be a little uh, difficult to try to appeal to every settings, but it's it's a challenge that I'm happy to take on. Bucky, this is such an interesting and exciting subject. You seem to be managing it rather well, so I'm not going <laughs> to give you any advice. <laughs> I, I would still welcome it, but uh, <laughs> a while back I bought a book. I've been doing these uh, tours for about eight years, and it started rather organically. It, originally, it was just um, some friends that were coming on, wanted me to do a ghost tour, and so many of my friends wanted to go on this uh, tour. We had, you know, we were taking people around on a bus. We ended up having to do three of them to accommodate uh, everyone. And every place we went, folks were asking for business cards. They were like, whatever this is, it looks amazing. Where can I sign up? So this, this uh, as a actual profession, it sort of chose me. I don't quite know how to say this, but I hope at some point in time, we'll have an opportunity to meet in a cemetery as living people. Yes. Yes. Uh, on the, on the right side of the grass. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, that would be, that would be fantastic. You know, I've spent so much time in our large cemetery here, uh, Greenlawn. I won't know the difference when I die. I've been telling people but yeah, yeah, they're, they are just again one of my favorite places to uh, to. I, I've always enjoyed spending time in cemeteries. They're, they're peaceful. They're a good place for reflection. And I think standing there and seeing all these slabs of marble and granite with names and dates on them, it's 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 humbling. It's kind of like staring up at the night, seeing all those stars. The cremate is no place for the details of one's life. I tend to agree with you on that. While burial doesn't seem to be a very sustainable method of going about death, it whenever people are cremated, their their stories become lost. It's a lot harder to preserve their tales. Was offered the opportunity to do night tours of Greenlawn Cemetery, the large cemetery here in the city, and it's the first time anyone in its 172 year history has had that chance to take the public in after dark. And taking a night tour of a cemetery probably one a little more intense experience than the uh, 
than than our our we do a daytime one that mostly focuses on ghosts that were created uh, by the Civil War. And so this one for nighttime, I decided it would talk about people who met untimely violent ends. And as it just so happens, so many of them were people who are in unmarked graves. And it's being able to tell these stories and bring their memories back from having been completely forgotten about for a century or so. It's, it was really, it's kind of an honor to, to be able to do that, even if it is through ghost stories and recounting the, the horrific incident that led to them dying. It's, it is a lot harder whenever there's not even a, a physical place to attach to a person once they've passed on. I'm especially drawn to a certain kind of cemetery, and that is the Potter's or Popper's mm-hmm. Field. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to visit any of those? I have. There aren't really any of those in existence so much anymore in Columbus. There are a few that related to the the penitentiary and asylums here. There are just gravestones with numbers on them. And recently, the the Mental Health Association here, last year they did this event where they started putting stories to the tombstones and names. They had folks out to one of these old cemeteries and the story of some of the folks buried there, which I, the, and I think they're doing it in conjunction with a Boy Scouts group where they're going to eventually have it sort of like an app that you can uh, download on your phone and walk and look at the stone and it'll tell you about the person, which I think is wonderful. It's a uh, potter's fields uh, of sorts here. One of the more famous uh, <laughs> ones, there's a stone in one of these uh, asylum cemeteries that rather than uh, just numbers or a name, it has... A single word on it, and that word is specimens. That really uh, gives people quite a um, uh, a chill, you know, it, just trying to imagine what exactly that means. And it turns out that it's actually things like goiters and tumors and uh, body, uh, like medical uh, specimens like that, whenever they would remove them from patients, decided that they wanted to bury them in this gravesite. <laughs> uh, and and seemed worthy of a, a, a grave marker says specimens a lot of the ones in the victorian era you know you see the urn with the with the the funeral pall draped across it carved in the stone or weeping angels and mourning angels and that sort of thing people who inject a little bit of humor or um a kind of a positivity to the to to the um experience of death is uh that's always so enlightening because you know i mean there's really no, you know, there is no getting out of this alive, and it's just, it's just a part of life, and I don't think it needs to be seen as a horrific thing. You know, in the Victorian era, they went through this beautification of death, where they decided, you know, it's all around us, we just as well make friends with it, and and started creating these more elaborate mourning rituals and stuff, and I, I think that we're, we're, we have such a sanitized um, view of uh, death these days, it's kind of nice to, if we could go back to that a little bit and uh, acknowledge it. And those fun stones, you know, that I've there's one near Oxford where there's a, a woman's grave and uh, on her stone it says, such and such, wife of a stone carver of such and such, of stones of this size and, and, and nature available for $50 a piece. Yeah. So he used his, his wife's tombstone and used it as an advertisement, his stone carving business. It, there's, a, there's one 
grave in Greenlawn Cemetery here that a fisherman, this guy, he was a son of a wealthy German immigrant here and he loved to fish. And there's a life-size statue of him sitting on top of his own grave with this fishing jacket and hat and fishing pole and a fishing bucket and a string of fish. And he's looking out over a small quarry lake in the center of the cemetery. And he's got a little bit of a smile on his face. And I have to say, I think he kind of got it right. (laughs) Um, Doing that sort of presenting himself as uh, someone who's relatively happy instead of a bunch of weeping angels and that sort of thing. Okay, this old podcaster is going to contact you again in the future, and let's continue the conversation. Yes, absolutely. I would love that, Patrick. In the meantime, stay positive and test negative. Yes. I wish you well, and thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate it. It was lovely chatting, even though the subject matter might have been a a little on the dark side. (laughs) Just a little bit. Okay, very good. Goodbye now. (laughs) 